Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Friends, we're continuing in our series called Scattered Together. We've taken a couple weeks break from our Life of David study. We're going to come back to that before too long. But in this series, Scattered Together, we're really just talking about the relationships that we have within the life of the church that reflect the love of God to our community. And so, and I hope that you're excited about the things that we're studying here. I feel like in this season, relationships are so essential to just everything we're talking about, everything we want to be about as a church. And so we want to lean in here for a couple weeks and just dive in and kind of do a deep dive in talking about what relationships look like within our community of faith. So uh, pray with me as we jump in here. Father, we do ask that you would be at work in our hearts and in our community. Father, that you would knit our hearts together, that we'd be unified, that we'd be a community that's truly connected relationally. Father, that spiritual friendships would, would flourish within our body and that uh, those who are new would be kind of enfolded into our family. And Father, just ask that you would breathe life into those relationships as, we, as we're reaching out and connecting in this season. Father, I pray as we dive into your word, Father, would you give us a heart, a heart for people like Jesus? Uh, Father, would you, would you give us a heart to bring, um, to bring grace and love and, uh, and, and life to those relationships with all those around us? Father, we pray it in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Friends, our world is a mess right now, and you probably don't need me to tell you that, but we are divided in so many ways. We're divided over political divides. We're divided over how to address the pandemic. We're divided over race. We're divided over financial crises that we're facing. And in so many ways, there's just, there's struggle just all around us. And you look around, and almost everyone I look look at, I talk to, just seems really weary. And I I think there's something good possible underneath that, that that I want us to explore in this season. And that's that, that sometimes disruption creates space for God to work. Uh, Frederick Buechner said this, he says, we're never more alive to life than when it hurts. Never more aware of both our own powerlessness to save ourselves or at least the possibility of power beyond ourselves to save us and heal us if we can only open ourselves up to it. We're never more aware also of our need for each other. Never more in reach of each other if we can only bring ourselves to reach out and let ourselves be reached. Friends, these coming months, it's just my prayer that our church would shine a light of Jesus really brightly in our city. And just that God would draw people to himself. And I think people are far more open and searching now than they were four months ago. And just prayerful that even in this this kind of chaotic season that we're in, that it would open people up to the possibility of, of them meeting Christ. And... Uh, friends, I think our, our, our community wants to know about the hope that's within us. Last week I said that our world's asking three questions of us. Do you love me? Are you real? And does it work? 
Our world needs to see our love. And last week we looked at John 13 and John 17 and passages where Jesus said that our message rings truer if our lives are filled with love for one another. That our community and our relationships and the ways in which we treat one another actually magnify the message about Jesus and and the grace that God wants to give them. And so we show people that Jesus is really the Savior sent from God to save the world by the way in which we interact and relate with one another. And so as we think about that, turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to look at a more personal account this week than we did last week. Last week we kind of went big picture, and today we're going to look at a really personal account of an encounter between Jesus and a woman who is trying to find a way in life. And, and I've always marveled at the way that Jesus interacts with people and the way he can engage an, an individual and break through their defenses and identify their need and then just breathe life into that relationship and, and offer grace in the moment. And so I never tire of looking at Jesus and his tender mercy with people. I, I want to be like that. And I want our church to be filled with people that look like Jesus and live like Jesus. And so what we're going to see today is if we're going to, if we're going to love like Jesus, we need to be a community of grace where people continually see new things about themselves, new things about God, and new things about how they can live for God. So let's read in John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 4. It says, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria, and he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob that had given his, his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me water to drink. For his disciples had gone in the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be, never again be thirsty. The water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will not have to come here again to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
So here we see an encounter between this woman of Samaria and Jesus is on his journey and he's seated beside the well. It says he's about the sixth hour. That would have been right around noon, right around lunchtime. And as he's waiting there and he's tired, he's thirsty, a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. And a couple things that I think it's helpful to point out here, that it's a strange time for her to, to go and draw water. Typically, uh, the ladies would go and draw water later in the day when it cooled off rather than right at the, at the hottest point of the day. And so it's odd the timing that she's there. It's also odd that she's alone. Typically the ladies from the, from the area would go out together and, and go get water and they kind of make that a group project. And so there's some speculation here that potentially because of some of the stuff we read about later, she was ashamed. And maybe she was lonely. Maybe she was someone who was a bit of an outcast. And so we find it strange that she's here at this exact moment and she encounters Jesus. Now the second thing is strange that she finds is strange is that Jesus is asking her for help. And there's a little parenthetical statement there. It says, says for Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. Now you need to understand the background at work here. The Samaritans and the Jews really had a lot of racial tension. There, there was a divide that, that is there both socially and spiritually. Spiritually. And so here we're dealing with race and prejudice. And the division between them was deeply rooted going back to the origins of the Samaritans as a mixed race and settled in the kingdom by the king of Assyria. And so the, the, the Israelites viewed the Samaritans as, as kind of outcasts. They looked at them as uh, political rebels, as racial half-breeds, as religious aberrant people. And th this is why the woman is so surprised when Jesus comes to her and asks for a drink. Uh, it, it often was that uh, Jews would skip past... Uh, they would either go around this area or if they wanted to take a shortcut and they would pass through Samaria, they would try to distance themselves as much as possible. They would almost never buy food from Samaritans. They would not drink from an implement or, or, or something or share a meal with a Samaritan. So for Jesus to come and say, use your bucket and draw me something to drink, felt like a pretty radical thing, this lady, and kind of took her back. And that's why she was so surprised that Jesus asked. So on top of this, Another factor that plays in is that men and women in that culture didn't associate in public. It was considered a kind of a social no-no to do. And so for Jesus to, to be engaging her one-on-one -on -one felt like he was stepping across several social norms. He was kind of breaking through social and religious mores of the day. And Jesus' love, we see this throughout the Gospels, that his love sometimes compelled him to break those norms. In verse 10, Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, to give you living water. And here you have this kind of funny exchange that happens where she looks at him kind of strangely and goes, now, you don't have any, anything to draw water with and this is a well that's over 100 feet deep. And so she's looking at him like, I'm, I'm not sure that you've got anything that you can draw water with and so, you know, are you just gonna jump in and scoop it up and fly out or what are you gonna do? And she says, even Jacob had to dig the well. So Jacob, kind of there, the hero who supposedly by tradition at least had dug this well. She's like, even Jacob couldn't just draw water magically. He had to dig a well out. What are you going to do? Are you greater than him? Now, that's meant to be a little bit funny for us. She doesn't yet know who she's talking to, but we do. And so we're looking and she says, you know, are you greater than Jacob? And we go, well, yeah, he is. Um, but she doesn't yet know that. And so there's some irony that's showing up there. So in verses 10 to 15, what we see is Jesus offers her uh, living water, which is kind of an odd phrase to us. And as we, but it's got a, it's got a big historical meaning throughout the rest of the scriptures. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's a strong history of this phrase that shows up repeatedly, especially in the prophets. And this phrase, living water, is really meant to carry kind of a double meaning. 
Living water is, it was a common expression in that world for water that's not stagnant or stale, water that's not putrid or uh, brackish, but fresh water, so flowing water where uh, there's constantly refreshment of it that keeps it really, is really healthy or um, really fresh water to drink. And so in some ways, she could be taking it that way that he's saying, look, I, mean, I could give you living water. And she's like, yeah, there's no streams around here that you can just go fetch some of that from. But there's also a second meaning. It's a spiritual meaning that Jesus is kind of tapping into. And he's, he's saying in a sense, um, you know, I ask you for a drink, but I possess the really good water that you ought to be asking for. And so there's a spiritual sense where he's saying, I am the living water who will meet all your needs. And you are a desperately thirsty being, craving something to fill you, but you keep running after water that doesn't fully satisfy you. And so there's a, there's a spiritual thirstiness that Jesus is trying to tap into and to kind of awaken in her. And that's true of all of us. We've all got a love tank that needs to constantly be filled. In fact, on the dashboard of our lives, there's a problem that says we, we keep trying to fill it, but, our, but the empty light is always, is always flashing in our lives because we can't find anything to fill that void. So we see that as Jesus is trying to kind of get her to think outside the box and see this a little differently, she doesn't really understand what he's talking about. And so in verse 15, she says, well, sure, give me that water because I'm tired of walking all the way out here to get more. So if you can meet my need, show me how that you can do that. And, uh, and I'd be happy to take your water so I don't have to come back to the well tomorrow. Um, but here, what we see is Jesus is going to now shift the conversation. He's going to continue to kind of dig in a little deeper and try to move past the surface to a, a, a kind of a bigger conversation and expand her view. And the Bible portrays us this way all the time. But Jesus in verse 13 says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. So throughout this whole conversation, Jesus is tapping into this living water idea that comes out of the Old Testament. It really comes from one of the primary places, Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah, a prophet, says to, to, of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament of Israel that they've forsaken God and the, the, the stream of living water that he wants to be to them. Instead, they've tried to carve out water of their own making. And, but they, in the cisterns, the, the holding tanks that, that they've tried to fill this up, fill up their own tanks in, it says they're cracked. And so as they fill water in, the water, as soon as they put some in, leaks out the bottom. And so they're constantly filling and leaking and filling and leaking and filling and leaking because these broken cisterns can't really satisfy the thirst that they have. And God says, it's an evil that you've done because you've forsaken me. So there's two evils you've done. One, you've forsaken me in the fountain that gives you real life. But two, you've created a false fountain that doesn't really meet your need. And so you're constantly trying to satisfy it in wrong ways. Now the broken cisterns, cisterns that Jeremiah is referring to, and these are really just coping strategies that we create to try to fill the emptiness in our lives. And we, we create these ways of trying to meet our needs and constantly run after things. And the problem with them is that they kind of work. As one guy said, the persistent problem with all of our coping strategies is that they work. Never fully, never finally, but enough to keep us coming back to them. See, that broken cistern living, it, it fills our tank and takes the edge off our thirst just enough to get us through the day. But then we're still thirsty. We need a little more. And we need a little more. And we need a little more. So we're constantly working to fill that tank. And at the same time, it's not really satisfying the deeper needs in our lives. 
Friends, our, our strategies for coping with our brokenness have the power to do precisely that. They help us cope because they promise it to, they promise to meet our needs. And so they help us with our sense of emptiness and our powerlessness, but they don't really, but they don't really satisfy us at a deep level. God wants our thirstiness to drive us to him. But our, our enemy, Satan, takes our emptiness and says, you know what, run harder, go faster, try, be more intensely desiring of these other things that, that you try to satisfy your needs in. And so we, we run after these coping mechanisms with greater urgency and greater intensity trying to fill the emptiness in our lives, but they don't ever get us where we need to go. And that's where I think Jesus is trying to get this woman to understand, and he's going to begin to address that in her life. In fact, in verse 16, he says, go and call your husband and tell him to come here. And here Jesus is gonna, he kind of comes out of left field and shifts the conversation in a way that feels really radical and feels really different. And, and honestly, it feels a little bit mean when he first does it. And he's, he's, but he's gonna highlight something. And really what he's gonna point out is this is the coping strategy for this lady that you've been trying to fill the emptiness in your life and it's not satisfying you. So the woman answers and said, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you've had five. And the one you're with now is not really your husband. And then she makes this, um, this kind of statement that says, you know, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, which is kind of funny because she understands that this guy's, this guy's pegging me in a way that doesn't make sense to me and, and this is not a normal conversation I have. So what's Jesus trying to do in this? He's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to peel back the Band-Aid. He said, you've got an emptiness, you've got a wound in your life and you keep trying to throw a Band-Aid on top of it, but this is a wound that a Band-Aid won't fix and you're gonna have to do some deeper work to find any kind of healing here. And so Jesus begins to poke at a place that's, that's hurting in her and, and he's coming at her with stronger medicine and I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but you get the point. He's, he's gonna move on from uh, the external thirst, a need for water, and really tap into her internal thirst, a need for living water. Friends, we're thirsty people and we try to fill our thirst in all kinds of ways. And for her, at least, one way was through her relationships. And Jesus is gonna force her to deal with some of the, the hurt and the, the, seeking, the, the seeking or thirstiness of her heart. And it's harder to get inside, in, to go inside, isn't it? And it's so much easier to talk about the external stuff than it is to start to surface the thirstiness of your soul that's deep, deeper on the inside. Jesus constantly presses in on us and goes to the heart. Verse 17 and 18, um, she says, I have no husband. That's interesting, um, kind of where she diverts that when he says, "Go get your husband." She doesn't explain all of the all of the history, and she doesn't explain the, the, some of the shame that she has. She doesn't unpack kind of all the hurt and say, "Hey, let me tell you everything that that that's connected to that question." She tries to divert it. She tries to dis, uh, to kind of redirect things. She says, "I don't have a husband," and, and tries to send Jesus in a different direction. Uh, but Jesus is not going to not going to be a light. Um, you know, it's funny. People have been wearing masks for a long time before coronavirus. And we are so good at putting on a disguise, putting on a mask, wearing a front, posing in a way and pretending that we have, have it all together, hiding all the junk in our lives and putting forth, kind of our, putting our best foot forward. In fact, all of, all of dating life is really built around that practice. And that's probably okay, ladies. If a guy comes and unloads all of his stuff on you in date one, you probably need to run away from that guy. He's probably not healthy. See, there's some uh, there's there's some reality for us of you don't need to just throw your dirty laundry out for everyone uh, but churches are really skilled 
at wearing masks and we pretend, uh, we like to pretend we don't lose our tempers at home. We like to pretend that we don't cut corners at the office. We like to pretend we've never looked at something on the internet that we shouldn't have looked at. We like to pretend uh, that we know more about walking with God than we know and it's uncomfortable to be exposed for what's real in your life. If I wasn't talking to a camera right now, I could just keep listing things until I got to watch you squirm because we all have a point where you hit a nerve and we begin to squirm. Surely I'm not the only one, right? But, but since I'm not, I'm just going to keep moving on. But the reality is uh, we're all sinners in need of grace with a bad habit of pretending like we aren't. And so we wear a mask and we put it up. This problem isn't a new problem. In fact, 100 years ago or so, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this and how this creates loneliness in our churches and keeps us from having real friendships. His language is a little strange to us, but he, what he says is really profound. Listen to how he talks about the problem of church filled with pious people rather than honest people. Bonhoeffer says, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. So he's saying, Christians, apart from their corporate gathering, may still be filled with loneliness. So why would that be? He says, the final breakthrough in fellowship does not occur because they have, because they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, but they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Man, there's some profound stuff there. There's a loneliness within spiritual communities whenever we wear a mask and pretend like we're not the sinners that we are. It prevents us from truly experiencing the grace that God wants to give and the living water of refreshment that God wants to breathe. There's nothing that's so freeing and nothing that's so life-giving as experiencing grace within a community where you can be honest to be yourself. And Jesus is trying to get this woman to, to open herself up to experiencing that kind of grace. Healthy churches create spaces of grace where we can break through to experience friendship as actual sinners trusting God's grace together. Jesus, then what we're going to see is going to push past her hiding and open up more of a, an honest conversation. He says, you're right in saying you have no husband. He's being gentle. He's saying, look, what you said is true. You don't have a husband. He said, but there's this, there's this gap between what you're saying and what your reality is. Of, and you've continued to run from one man to another to another. And you're trying to fill this thirst in your life. And so in, in addressing that with her, uh, she does, makes this comment, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then it's interesting because she tries to divert the conversation again in a different direction because it's starting to feel really uncomfortable. She gets all squirmy and she's like, hey, let me pose this theological conversation with you. She says, uh, says to him, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. What do you think about that theological conundrum? Uh, isn't it so much easier to deal with some kind of a theological debate or issue than it is to deal with the stuff that makes you squirm uh, about your own life? And uh, did you know that religious talk could be another way just to wear a mask? 
So what's happening is she's hiding behind a religious or theological conversation and pious people find pious sounding conversations to hide behind. And so she just put on, she swapped one mask for another and just put on more of a religious mask. And man, don't you know that tendency in your own heart? That when things start to start to get a little uncomfortable that you just think, man, let me just divert this over to this more of a surface conversation that I'm not really worried about. Uh, have you noticed that as we kind of put on masks in this COVID season, that they've just become more and more personalized? Uh, one of the things I, I've just kind of begun to laugh at is you see all the marketing that's now rolling out with all the, uh, the, the coronavirus masks that are being promoted and there's you know this sports team and that sports team and this character and that guy and this color and this pattern and everyone's getting really creative with their own personalized masks and we do the same thing spiritually. That we, We've got all kinds of masks that we can, that we can portray or use to try to cover up or cope with our emptiness. And the problem is that if we don't ever take the mask off and reveal the real thirst in our souls, we're not gonna ever get to the stuff that matters the most. And so Jesus is gonna continue to push past that. So he takes and answers her question, but then he steers it right back around and comes back to her heart and what her heart worships. And so in verses 21 to 26, uh, Jesus redirects that conversation. And I'm not gonna unpack all of this, but he gets to a point where he just says, look, the Father is seeking such people to worship him, those who will worship in spirit and truth. And I think this is an important thing for us to understand is that Jesus, he, he didn't get distracted. He didn't take the rabbit trail too much. He gently answered the question, but he steered it right back to, hey, where is your heart? What is your heart worshiping? What is your heart thirsty for? Where are you looking for your identity and your significance and your, uh, your, your salvation? He says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, that Jesus knew that the, the Father was very much aware of her sin and brokenness. This was not a shock to, to the Lord of what she had done in her past. Jesus was, himself was not shocked with that. And yet he says that this, this heavenly Father desires a relationship with you, even knowing everything it is there is to know about your life. In fact, he's seeking people just like you to worship him. He longs for you to worship him, not out of some neediness, but God has a sovereign pleasure at being enjoyed by the creatures that he made. And so God is seeking those who would worship him, even, even those that are like this woman and those that are like us. Friends, Jesus wants to deal with your sins so that, so that he can quench your thirst and receive your worship. Verse 25, we see, he says, uh, she says, I know that there is a Messiah coming, a deliverer, savior that's coming. And Jesus answers and says, I'm that guy. I'm the savior, I'm the deliverer, I'm the one that's come. And I always found it fascinating what she does next. In verse 28, we see this kind of transition that takes place. She says, uh, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and came to the people and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. So this, this shift takes place really quickly when they get to the end of the conversation and his disciples come and kind of interrupt them. But what you see is the, the, this kind of amazing image that the writer gives us here is that um, she leaves her water jar behind. 
And what a beautiful image that the writer gives of first of what happened, that she came to the well thinking, man, I'm physically thirsty, and, I, and she brought her jar, and she was going to fill it up. But after encountering with Jesus, he actually goes further than that and fills her with living water, and she encounters him as, as her Savior, as the Messiah. And when she, when she leaves there, she leaves her old, uh, her old jar behind because he's quenched her deeper and more real thirst. Jesus has said that he'd give her living water so she'd never be thirsty again. And we get a picture of that and the fact that she walked off and left her water jar behind clearly had a deeper thirst that he met. And notice what else shifts in her. She says, come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. This woman who came to the well alone, this woman who probably came at a certain time of day so she could avoid other people, probably out of shame because of her background and everything she'd been through, now is, is actually broadcasting her history to everyone. Hey, come see everyone who come see this man who told me all about my past. Isn't it a strange freedom and joy we experience when we're completely known and completely loved at the same time? That she experiences a love and acceptance from in Christ's grace that even though it exposes the thirst and the desire in her heart, Jesus is gentle and he's good and he's caring for her. And so he, he, he surfaces that in order to say, hey, let me fill you with something that will truly quench your thirst as opposed to these things that you keep running after. That's grace. That's what Jesus offered her and it's what, what he offers to us too. Friends, do you, know, do you know this Savior? Do you know this kind of grace? Have you experienced that kind of un, unpacking of what's inside of you and the, the longing and the desires of your heart and, and finding those to be met with a Savior named Jesus and through the love of his Father? Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to believe it's so good, and yet uh, it is so good. We want to invite others to enjoy the experience. In verse 39, we see the next thing that, uh, that she does. It says, The many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And I love that. I love that Jesus encountered her. He, he, he kind of surfaced a new understanding or way of looking at her own life. He surfaced a new way of her uh, seeing the Lord. And then he surfaces a new way that she can live with the Lord and says, you can actually be used by God. And so he immediately, she he uses her to carry out his purposes. And so it says, because of the woman's testimony, said, he told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there for two days teaching. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And through this, this one encounter with this broken woman who was alone and who was probably walking in shame, and Jesus surfaced so much in her that she came and she, she testified. She told, she witnessed, she shared with her community, hey, let me show you what this guy did and how it's, how it's met me in the midst of my brokenness and changed my life. What a testimony. This is what we dream about and pray about as a church that many would say as they did. It's no longer because of what you said that I believe, but we've heard, we've encountered, we know that he's a savior. That's what we want to be as a church. So friends, how do we respond to all this? I began this morning saying that, uh, that our world's asking three questions of us. Do you love me? Are you real? And does it work? Let me ask you this. If you ask this woman after her encounter with Jesus what her experience was like, how do you think she would answer these questions? 
It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And friends, we need to love like Jesus. That, that's, that's the call, really, of this entire, uh, this entire passage, is that we want to love like he, like he did. And as followers of Jesus, I think there's two important values we see at work in what Jesus did here. I love the way that Jesus engages someone who could be easily overlooked by others. Uh, but he, Jesus is there, and as he's present, he's, he's present in the moment to see her for who she is, and he engages her. And what we see there is that everyone mattered to Jesus. So everyone should matter to us. And the way we say this sometimes at redemption is that no one should walk alone. And what we mean by that, it's not just a tagline or something we throw. This is, this is rooted in the heart of Jesus and the way we see him interacting with, with the people in his world. And so we want to we have the same heart, a uh, heart like Jesus. And we want to interact with people in our world in the same kinds of ways. So we desire as a church to be a place where everyone has a community, where they can connect and grow as followers of Jesus. So we want to say that no one walks alone. The second thing I see in, in this is that Jesus kept moving beyond surface talk to heart talk. And so he moved the focus to the heart. And he knew that no real spiritual growth would happen unless he got kind of beyond the externals and began to deal with internal transformation. And so in the midst of that, um, and unless he was able to help her remove her masks and get honest about the real thirst in her heart, there was not going to be any real spiritual growth that happened. So we want to be a church where that kind of thing happens as well. And uh, so we want to be a place where, uh, as we say, where everyone is known. We want to be authentic about life and trust God's grace together. And so as a church, it's a place where no one walks alone and everyone is known. And these are relational values that we want to see lived out in the life of our church because growth happens best in the context of community. That's why we talk so much about redemption groups and why we want to connect you with, with, with a group of spiritual friends where you're continually learning new things, learning to see your life in new ways, learning to see the Lord in new ways and learning to see how you can live your life in new ways. And that's, that's why you hear us talk about groups as the primary place where you can find care and community and growth. And our hope is that, that, that your experience in that would be an experience and an encounter with grace and truth that, that gives you, that, that really quenches the deeper longings of your heart as we point you to Savior and King who can, who can quench your thirst. Friends, my heart in this, just in this season as we walk through just the craziness and the chaos of, of this day is that we want to be a church built on grace. Because we, we believe grace goes to work in, in group conversations where, where we encounter one another and where we kind of peel back the mask and deal with the thirsts of our hearts and, in honest ways and then allow truth from, from God to, to go to work there in those kinds of places. Grace is a gift from God that comes through Jesus by his Holy Spirit, but he'll meet us anywhere we seek him. It doesn't just happen in the big gatherings of the church. It's not, grace. his grace is not mediated through, through a priest or through a religious ceremony, but God's grace can meet us anywhere. I love what Brendan Manning says. He says, the gospel of grace nullifies our adulation of televangelists, charismatic superstars, and local church heroes. Grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. And so friends, as we gather in little groups of people and as we encounter people as we, as we go about our days at work and at play and, and in our neighborhoods and uh, as, we, as we encounter people just through the course of our life, just know those can be grace moments. Those can be moments where, where God has arranged a meeting just like Jesus had with this woman where, where somehow we can press beyond our surface thirst and get to a deeper thirst and point people to a savior 
that truly offers them grace that will be life-changing and they'll fill them up forevermore. We pray for us. Father, I do pray that our groups will be filled with grace, that our church will be filled with grace, that our lives will be filled with grace, and that as we interact with our city, as we walk throughout our days, as we interact with one another, Father, that your love and your grace would be fully on display. God, make us like Jesus. Father, make us those who, uh, who see people when we encounter them. Father, those... Um, Make us, make us like Jesus and the reality that everyone matters to us. Father, that no one would be overlooked, that no one would walk alone. But Father, help us also in that as we reach wide to, to go deep. Father, to trust your, your gospel and, and your truth to do deep work in our hearts, that you bring about transformation in, in all those nooks and crannies of our hearts that need life to be breathed in. Uh, Father, we, we trust you, we love you, uh, we trust you because of Jesus and the grace that we've experienced, and Father, we long for, for more of that, and we long for more people to taste of and see that you are good. Father, we pray it in Christ's name, amen.